0: Hello, this is Nancy Wilson, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast, with your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. Stand
1: by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your Morning Coffee is on the air. On the air. On the air. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart.
2: Hi, I'm Jay Gilbert, and I'm pretty sure that I am Mike Etchart. To celebrate our first year anniversary, we're thrilled to bring you the special Your Morning Coffee podcast, Artist Spotlight. Featuring
3: legendary guitarist and founding member of Heart, Nancy Wilson.
2: Yeah, we recently sat down for coffee talk with Nancy to hear all about her very first solo album, You and Me. And of course, we will talk about her incredible body of work with Heart. So
3: sit back, turn us up. It's the Your Morning Coffee podcast podcast. Artist Spotlight with Nancy Wilson. And we are on the air.
2: I'm going to kick it off with uh, the the first question. So you grew up in Bellevue, near Seattle. I grew up in the Seattle area, too. So I grew up on J.P. Patches and Lots of Rain and Fresh Seafood. And I grew up on Heart, you know. So I bought those first five studio albums at Cellophane Square and Second Time Around and Peaches and Tower in the U District. Where did you shop for records, and what did you grow up on?
0: Well, we, we shopped at Peaches, and we got those... Uh, you know wooden Crate. carts crates yeah it, you know was kind of like your rental apartment sort of furniture <laughs> all the time and uh yeah we we were just we were going down to the music store bandstand east there in Lake Hills mm-hmm. not far from the roller rink where we would go see bands come through um and you know we we were just little uh, little white chicks from, you know, the suburbs, basically, <laughs> trying to make bands, you know, like protest, learn protest songs like Do Bob Dylan songs. And, you know, we had no idea, you know, the context in which that probably appeared to be a little uh, congruous, incongruous, but... Um, you know we just we were just all about the top 40 and learning everything and trying to learn how to write new songs of our own and both of them were bad at the beginning and then uh, <laughs> so you know we just we grew up we could walk down to the roller rink and we'd go roller skating a lot and um, we could hear the bands play from our bedroom windows you know just a few blocks away so it was it was really a cool time for music on the radio, um, coming through town. Um, Anne actually went, she was older and she got to go see The Doors one time. And she got to see Ray Charles one time and, you know, uh, in the city, in the big city of Seattle. And so, yeah, there were just such, it was, we were steeped in all this rich, beautiful musical treasury that we were lucky enough to be part of.
3: I'm going to follow up with the next question because, which is not my original question, but it, it's sort of along that same lines, which is so interesting. Um, Jay and I are both fathers of daughters, and I, I've read elsewhere that you actually saw the Beatles as a young kid, right?
0: We saw them in yeah. At- at the uh, Seattle Coliseum in 1966, you know, uh, with the World's Fair and stuff there. Um, and there was a few other acts that opened first. And I think it was maybe Paul Revere and a couple of, you know, maybe the Whalers or something. I can't really remember exactly, but I probably could Google it. But uh, then they um, there was an intermission, and they... They turned the uh, uh, Mel Evans, the roadie uh, that they were with forever. He carried out Ringo's bass drum, his kick drum with the logo on it mm-hmm. that said the Beatles, obviously. And the place just came completely unglued. <laughs> like just a, a million flashbulbs all at once. It was daytime, just for the just for the gr- just for the drum. You know, the first setup <laughs> and. Uh, We were there as a foursome, me, Anne, and two other girls that we'd made a band with called The Viewpoints. We called The Viewpoints at the time because we were so radical in the suburbs. And and we had, our mom had made us matching uniforms to match the Beatles uniforms that they were wearing. You know, we we had two, two sets of uniforms, the... The, the navy blue double-breasted one, as well as the khaki uh, mandarin collar one. And, and we were wearing the, the khaki mandarin collar uniform with our skirts, of course, um, you know, and just studying this, um, you know, studying their every move with our, with our binoculars, not screaming, you know, like everybody else was screaming, but we were, we were too cool. You know, we were already kind of like the Beatles. So it, it was beneath us to be the screaming chicks, you know, at the <laughs> Coliseum.
3: <call> <laughs> Which was interesting to me because, you know, where, where so many young girls at the time wanted to marry the Beatles, you wanted to be the Beatles. You wanted to be John Lennon. And yet there were, no, there were no sort of female role models at the time. How did you kind of have the foresight to just kind of zero in on that ambition?
0: Yeah, well, I think because for one thing, we started really young and we didn't have any kind of, you know, sense of, um, you know, being limited by our uh, uh, idea of what sexuality was allowed to do or not do, what femininity, if if you could be kind of like a tomboy, you could be kind of like the Beatles or be the Beatles in your own mind and um, not be, you know, bound and gagged by what was the expected thing for girls to do so yeah we just we just plowed ahead we just barged right through and um, you know just we were military Marine Corps brats as well so I think there's a whole kind of confidence that comes with you know um, being really sure footed and you know the confidence that comes with have uh, feeling powerful and part of, of a military kind of aristocracy, like, like the Marine Corps. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. And early on though, in kind of following up with this role model concept at one point, at one, at what point did you kind of realize once the band got started that you were a role model for females?
0: Yeah. You know, um, it took me probably till more recently to kind of figure that out because it it was a recurring motif that a lot of girls would tell us wow I would never would have picked up a guitar you know if you guys hadn't done this first and um, so great you know you know don't be shy just go ahead and achieve what you want you know like don't don't take no for an answer but I think when the 80s kind of rolled around and the MTV part of it all, it uh, I think it sort of back, it kind of, um, you know, brought everything back a few steps. It kind of de-evolved where women were probably about to get going. So, you know, the territory they were probably about to occupy because the 80s was so, you know, in its own beautiful way, it was so all about imaging and... Um, you know, and you, you had to have huge hair and you had to have big <laughs> makeup and big costumery and, mm-hmm. you know, glamorousness. And it wasn't, for a while there, it wasn't really about music anymore. You know, it was about how you looked, if you were overweight, you know, or... <laughs> and a lot a lot of people would... We had a big success, of course, in the 80s, which was great. Yeah. But, I mean, people would... After later on in the 80s, they would go, Do you really play the guitar? You're just posing oh with goodness. it. Oh I'm like, God. Oh, God, I started yeah. when I was nine, okay? You know? <laughs> so, the, all that kind of stuff was really an interesting sideline to the 80s itself. And then now now we're back where women are really stepping out again, like Phoebe Bridgers and mm-hmm. all these cool Lucy Dekas and really some great women coming forward right now.
2: Yeah. Well, we're going to dig into your solo album, You and Me. But before we do, I wanted to ask a heart-related question because, you know, I, again, I hate to sound like Chris Farley, but the the intro to Crazy On You, um, I grew up watching you and the band play, and that was one of the highlights of the evening, and it would light the room up every time. And it didn't matter if it was you know a medium sized room or Autzen Stadium you know in Oregon or whatever so tell us what it's like <laughs> to play i mean Nancy tell us what is it like to play crazy on you you step out it's you it's your acoustic guitar under the spotlight and first of all i would imagine you blow a lot of people away because they're they're watching you play your instrument and then second of all the crowd just they just go nuts when you play that
0: <laughs> yeah, because they know Crazy On You is coming next, you know, this yes. so is the intro. but uh, And the kick, of course, you know, but um, <laughs> but it uh, feels really powerful. It feels really, I feel good as a player because I can step up and kind of take my place as a proficient player that's, you know, in the forefront of a song that's huge, about to you know, break wide open type of song. And there's a lot of fa- it's interesting on, like, on Instagram because I don't really do Twitter or Facebook, but um, on Instagram there's so many fans that learn that they 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 post it themselves playing that over and over <laughs> all different which ways and you know there's once in a while somebody gets it really really close <laughs> and I have to put a like on that you know because it's really not an easy thing to play. And there was some some guy had a cool program where he uh, was showing the best you know intro intros to songs of all time, and I got to be number fourteen on that list. And um,
3: <laughs> I think that was Rick Beato's website or Rick Beato's show.
0: Yeah, that's yes. right. He to stay. but it was really a cool show, really a great show. Yeah. And he plays every single one of those except for mine. See, it silver wheels. And he just said I, I can't exactly attempt to play this myself so I'll just show some footage of the girl who made it up you know it. Yeah
3: <laughs> That's awesome Speaking and before we again get to the specific album stuff I do want to speaking of of that of that rush on the stage and you guys live um, I was mentioning to Jay before we started I saw you all in October 2nd 1976 at, uh, UC Santa Barbara, um, and it was, you were opening, it must have been, I think it was your first national tour, I assume, or it was, it was, early days, it was right after Magic Man came out, you were opening for Jefferson Starship, and for this, for this one concert, though, I think it was only one time, after the tickets had been put up for sale and everything, they added Leonard Skinner to the middle, and, you guys, but so we were there to see you, and you came out, and you guys killed it. I mean, it was, <laughs> you were fantastic. And we didn't know there were two women in the band, because we, of course, heard the song, and we knew that your sister, there was a woman singing, but we didn't know you were in the band. We were 16, so so we were, you know, we, we were not, the, the, the attractiveness was not lost on us. However, you guys were fantastic, and uh, it was the first time that I had ever seen an opening act shame the other acts um leonard skinnard was so you guys came out slamming the energy level was high (laughs) the enthusiasm was high leonard skinnard was dull and then jefferson starship was duller and uh, i had never seen that happen before but you know early on where did you had this confidence and enthusiasm it was infectious did you know that or were you just going for it
0: well, we were whippersnappers to be sure, you know. Yeah. We were just we we're loud and proud and knowing that we were very different from most bands because we had powerful women in the front um and we were the leaders of the band too, you know. And we were the the face and the sound of the band was the two of us together. So um if we felt really like pretty cocky you know pretty burly about it all <laughs> because we could do it and we did it well and people were really going nuts for us and so we were like okay
3: it showed yeah, yeah we'll totally we'll, showed
0: i'll take the blue ribbon right down you know
2: <laughs> well Wonderful. let's talk about you and me and we'd like to go th- if it's okay with you we'd like to go through track by track but it's it's hard to believe that this is your first solo album Um, I know That's that's crazy to me So how did this happen?
0: Well, everybody always said When are you going to do a solo album? And, you know it's been such a time where there's always a tour. If you don't get home very long, just long enough to rest your fingers, rest your voice, open your mail, cook a couple of good meals and leave again. So, you know, it it didn't work out just kind of technically for quite a while, um, unless we were going to take some time off just to record an album, right, and record an album. So it just sort of never really came around to to happening until the shutdown, obviously, was the ideal, you know, reason to, okay, I've got this time now. I'm not allowed to go anywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not mingling around, so I'm gonna stay. We we moved to Northern California, Sonoma County, and I got this new um, space, it's a good music space, and so i brought my stuff out of storage and put my guitars everywhere and just left them out so i could make as much of a mess as i wanted to and just leave it that way and i could make plenty of racket and not worry about neighbors or anything like that so um i set about you know trying to create some new material and i was kind of reaching into my old you know Suitcase full of notebooks and trying to get um, inspired with various writings that I've saved along the way and various Mm -hmm. little you know notes that I've had in my phone with guitar parts and but the first thing I wanted to do was to to cover the rising by Bruce Springsteen because being in a pandemic all of a sudden and having all this insanity of loss and the tragedy of it all was. was I wanted to do something because he'd written that for 9-11 initially. Mm. And so I figured this could be an aspirational thing to put out there into the world right now to help people through this. Because, yeah, yeah, so I already had recorded Daughter for a film before that. We'll just go one at a time.
2: Sure, sure. But Mike, you had a question.
3: Yeah, so just sort of for, for context, uh, historically, did, when you would, would go down to write an, a, a Heart album, did you and, and your sister have a, kind of a set process, and did that, did that say, stay the same throughout the, 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 the all of the albums, and then how did you, as a, as a solo artist now, kind of approach the writing of a solo album?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, we've had a process that pretty much stayed um, consistent throughout All these decades later, um, (laughs) our friend Sue Ennis that we've collaborated a whole bunch with as well. We've, we always used to go down to the Oregon coast and go to a beach house for a week or two and, and get out our notebooks and sit down at the table and, you know, I'd bring some recording equipment and we'd try to make demos with a drum machine and that kind of stuff. And we were hauling little amps around and hauling little, you know, Casio things around and um, Tascam six tracks and mics and you know we'd haul guitars around and electrics and acoustics and get all the notebooks out and um, you know sometimes we'd be sitting there just like stunted you're just kind of like well what do we care about like Mm -hmm. what are we going to talk about what's the story we need to tell today you know and we did that for a for one of the big songs heart songs called mistral wind mm. we were sitting in berkeley where we're sorry about the, <laughs> sorry about right. the clock. it's kind of um, nice it's pretty right yeah it's a hundred yeah. year old club nice nice uh, yeah so uh anyway we were sue ennis was going to berkeley uh grad school and we were sitting around in her little apartment trying to wait for an idea and um for a couple of days, for a weekend. And we were like, damn it, we're just stuck. You know, we've got writer's <laughs> block or something. Sure. Something's wrong here. We can't express something. We don't know what it is. And so I think Sue said, one of us said, we are kind of like, you know, um, a sailboat waiting for the wind. It was like, ding, <laughs> and then there it, it kind of hit us. There it is, and that's where Miss Trollwind started. Well, that's a good segue into the the new album because we
2: kick it off with You and Me, which you wrote with Sue Ennis. And, and you mentioned Mr. All Wind which the live version of that uh, on that Greatest Hits Live is one of my all-time favorites. I mean, that's a really powerful recording uh,
0: on there. I really, if there was one song, one heart song that I had to pick you know, to feel really good about, it that would probably be the main yeah. one, because as a song, as lyrically as it, um, the journey, the lyric journey goes the same way as the music goes, so the the journey of the music matches the lyrics all the way through, yeah. and you, you end up going like Ulysses through a storm, and there's sirens calling you, and you're going to crash on the rocks, and... You make it to the other side, but you're never gonna be the same again. <laughs> yeah. What you've experienced.
2: Yeah, it's like a yeah. movie wrapped up in a song. Yeah, it's, it's very so cinematic. cinematic. Yeah, very yeah. Cinematic. So, so talk about you and me because you, uh, your collaborations with Sue Ennis. I mean, you mentioned Mr. All but Straight On, Even It Up, Dog and Butterfly. I mean, butterfly. The, the the things that you've written together. And she was also in the Love Mongers, right?
0: Yeah, she played in the Love Mongers temporarily we we had a you know a good run with the love mongers we were playing clubs around <laughs> seattle yeah. we just we were kind of we just needed a break from the the 80s of it all so we, we
2: just the 80s to take of it, it all i love that <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have to take it back to the small clubs you know and see the whites of their eyes so tell us about you and
2: me because it's not only the first track, but it's the the title track.
0: Right. Well, you know, me and Sue, we've worked, collaborated on a whole bunch of different things, including scripts and songs and um, diff- different ways of telling stories, and she both of us you know grew up together and both of our moms you know are no longer around and when her mom passed away she had she had written this one song called follow me for her mom um a beautiful little melodic thing you know with a demo and i she said remember this and i said oh wow i've always loved that but I, I think it, it, it could be... I have a poem called You and Me and Gravity. And so we we proceeded to kind of um, graft the two things together into a new thing that was a conversation, you know, with... In zero gravity with someone you've, you miss and you still, you know, feel like you... They're there in another place for you to talk to and to you know, to protect you and wow. so Wow. Yeah, so... Uh, I'd lovely a sentiment. I'd had a dream about my mom. That's when I wrote the words, the words out, largely most of which are still in the song. And um, I felt like I'd got to see her and she was there to help me out, you know, with, of any kind of tough spot, I was emotionally feeling. Yeah. So, so that's kind of where that whole thing came in. And, and then I thought, after after we, we did it, I thought it was really good. I mean, I really liked it. Mm-hmm. I was like, this does not have, this does not suck. You know, there, there's no <laughs> there's no no flies on the song. So um, <laughs> so I I thought, well, wouldn't it be just bold to call the album that and to be bravely almost sentimental? You know, because it's not cool you know it's very emotional and it's Beautiful. really brave and bravely honest yeah. so I figured uh-huh. why not break the rules a little bit and just go for that <laughs> nice
3: and when, when you know with your established history with Sue when you guys get together do you kind of fall into a, a sort of a, a pattern where maybe one person does more lyrics as a person does more songs or is it really fluid when you when you sit down
0: it is really fluid. She has a lot of good ideas. She plays keyboards well, and mm. she knows how to program stuff and make demos really well. And she can sing on the demos, and I can, you know, kind of get ideas from her that she already has put together. Um, so that that was the case in in a couple of cases on this album too, with her and um, Ben Smith, who was the drummer in Heart Forever, and um, they being in Seattle. They get together a lot and try to, you know, um, you know conjure up some songs. And so some yeah. of those songs that they kind of started, I got to be part of and help finish.
2: Yeah. Wow, Neat. Well, you talked about the rising uh, a little bit, Bruce Springsteen, 9/11. Let's let's talk about my, my favorite track on the album is "I'll Find You." It's in heavy rotation in my car, <laughs> <laughs> and I listen to it like I do with a lot of uh, great songs. I listen to it over and over, over again. and over and, and over again. Yes, you know, and and I it's I, I probably listen to it 20 times. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, "I'll Find You."
0: Yeah. Um, that was a song that Ben and Sue had sort of started, you know, experimenting around with. And they had this beautiful little demo, once again, that I used most of in and played along with, you know. And um, I think we, I don't think we even changed the arrangement. I, mm. I think we just, I just kind of slotted into that demo and finished it with um, some words changed you know from their original demo as well but i i love that this it's a song like ben himself has done a recovery thing for quite a few years and um he he really has a great knowledge kind of emotional um i think some of his ideas in that song really are meaningful because you know, it's, it's an act of forgiveness for somebody that, um, you're kind of forgiving, um, them for going missing. Like, I'll be there for you no matter what. Unconditional acceptance and love. So I like stuff like that. I'm I'm all about that stuff.
3: (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) As we get to the daughter, um, that was in a Netflix original called "I Am All Girls." Yes, um, that's How did how did they find you for that? Did they say we want you to do this song, or did you have the song already recorded? What was the? How do those things happen with Netflix?
0: Well, that was before the shutdown when I recorded that with some cool guys in Austin, including including, um, Tony Levin on the bass.
3: Oh, wow, I saw that. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and um, there's this really good producer there, uh, David Rice. He's got a thing called The Clubhouse, really good recording space. And I was coming into town to do... uh, some work with this Eric Tesmer, this amazing guitar player from Austin. We were going to... We recorded a couple s- songs for his EP, which we still need to finish someday, but um, <laughs> we... Uh, I said, well, there's this movie, there's this film that wants me to record uh, this song, because... Daughter, a pro song because in the lyrics, it is the, um, the lyrics at one point say she holds the hand that holds her down, okay. and this, the film is about human trafficking, so of young women, you know. So yeah. it's a true story. It is really a brutal true story, but it's really also quite aspirational, and the film itself is really fine. So, um, so I already had that in my back pocket. So I said, well, hey, I own the Masters. I'm going to put it on my solo album. <laughs> nice.
3: It, nice. Yeah, it's, and it's one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs, without a doubt. Um, it's a great song. And, it's, yeah. and as, ironically, as it's the rising of one of my favorite Springsteen tracks, and it's as I kind of saw the track this I'm like, Wow, good t- good taste in, in <laughs> covers. A. I thought I was <laughs>
2: the only one with good taste in music, that, and now that's I thought
3: like, exactly. there's, there's somebody else. Weird.
0: Another person. Exactly. What other person?
3: So
2: it's the three of us. I think we can kind of agree on that. Yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah. a that's a good segue into uh, party at the Angel Ball Ballroom because yes. this is such an interesting collaboration. You know, Duff McKagan, of course, Taylor Hawkins, and you were on Taylor's Get the Money album in 2019, so you you knew each other and had collaborated. But how did this collaboration happen?
0: Well, when I went to his house before I left L.A. um, and sang on his record, along with some other guests that sang on his record, like Chrissy Hine did, too. Oh, wow. um, Good record, too, I gotta say. Uh, He's so fun. He's really fun to work with. He's kind of on the spectrum, you know, so he's just like, um, you know, like always in motion. And thinking five things and ahead of himself at all times, and so, uh, so we had really fun working together, and I liked how it turned out really a lot. And so when I s- decided up in Northern California to actually start doing something for a solo album, I texted him and I just said, "Hey, you owe me one, dude. You know."
3: <laughs> what a-
0: Does you have anything like cool just laying around, you know, old ideas laying around? He goes, well, I have this thing me and Duff jammed on. And I said, just send it over. So put it in the Dropbox, you know, and rearranged everything quite a bit, but, um, and wrote a song around that vibe. And it turned into something funny, because I was, and fun, because it's kind of a heavy topic. But it, it put, putting through a lens of you know, a little bit of a com, a comic lens, it makes it kind of different and fun.
3: Yeah neat song neat song on um, the, the the other the other track which is so interesting uh, as we roll to track number 6 it, it's interesting for two reasons one it's a Simon and Garfunkel song called the boxer yeah. amazing song mm. and then you it's Sammy Hagar is on it so right. for those of us that didn't tour <laughs> in the 70s and 80s do you do you just bump into these people when you're on the road or how did how did you and Sammy get together for this and then why the boxer
0: Yeah, well, um, Sammy's a really close old, good old friend of my hubby Jeff, and they grew up in the Bay Area with each other for a long, many, many years ago. And um, when he, once a year, he's done this really nice benefit in San Francisco for the um, USFC, I think it is hospital, um, for children for brain. Uh, Cancers, benefit Mm. stuff so he puts on a big show every year and because I was now married to Jeff his friend he said hey Nancy maybe you could come up and do a couple songs with me so I've done that benefit a couple of times with Sammy and each time we joke because it's like okay you owe me one now so I said well how about if you want to sing something on my record that you know and he said yeah what do you want to do what she got, and because Hart had been doing in the last big tour, we were doing the Boxer um, live, and it was just one of those great songs people to sing along, you know, with the chorus because it's you don't have to know those words. So, mm-hmm. La La La, and so, uh, <laughs> right. I, so he said, you know, I said I've got this big rock number, and he's like, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty. Uh, that would be pretty expected the red rocker does a big rocker what else have you got saying, we're gonna do the boxer do you want that he said i would love to sing the boxer on the boxer because um i was a boxer myself and my dad was also a boxer oh. you know so so he's like he occupies the center of the ring in that song um you know, being the caricature of the actual boxer in the song, so I, I really like that about the surprise he brings into the song. Yeah, yeah. And 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 kind of to to that
3: sort of collaboration, just again, sort of nuts and bolts question are you were you really in the studio with Sammy or in these days do you just kind of like you were saying you you drop box things around and he does it where he is is that is that how pretty
0: much it goes down these days that's how it had to go down and probably yeah. still will have to go down who knows how long yeah but um but yeah we were we were playing you know musical tag because all mm-hmm. my band guys who my players were all in Seattle mm-hmm. um my 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 first engineer kind of co-producers in Denver. So I'd send my tracks to him and then he'd Dropbox them out to them individually. Each time I would approve the part or change, get, ask for changes. So it took the entire time, mm-hmm. the lockdown time, yeah. um, just to, you know, get it right. But these guys I've just spent a whole long tour playing with most recently. and. All of us know each other's...
2: So there's chemistry there.
0: Yeah, there's yeah. so much chemistry. We know each other as friends and as players. And what the other guy's going to fill or leave out, fill in or leave out. So we know how to be polite players with each other already. Yeah. Give each other their moments, you know, through the song.
2: Got it.
3: Do you find it hard, you know, that you've you've been around now for, for seeing so many technological changes and how, how albums are made. You know, what I hear from a lot of other artists sometimes is, you know, you have so much you have so much latitude of how you can do things that it's actually sometimes harder hard to finish. Um, I don't, do you find that at when you're because the technology is so deep and dense, and you can have all these layers of everything, that it's kind of hard to say, oh, okay, done. We got, to, we got to finish this.
0: Yeah, I've I've grown to really appreciate the idea as a producer and as a f- player that you it doesn't serve anyone that to be indecisive about it all. You have to decide right. what you want to keep. And how you want to keep it, and move on, and don't get stuck there because there's so many choices. There's just way too many. I don't do. I don't even do um, Pro Tools myself. I just bought a simple interface six-track thing called the Spire system mm-hmm. that, that a friend of mine helped me put record onto, and um, i got good mics. Good guitars, good old guitars, good old amplifiers like a Fender Deluxe. <laughs> nice. A couple of pedals, and that's it. You know, it's just yeah. really, really basic. Yeah. Well, it's worth mentioning you were the producer
3: on this. Yeah, so this is true. You were the producer, so you had the last word, of course, which often the artist does as well, but it was your job to say, "Yeah, we're done. this is this is locked. this is loaded. this is this is going out. Well,
0: I got to prove each level of each thing as it went down. so it's and I know what I want. that's the that's not the easiest part. Like I know what I want to um hear, and I know the sounds I want to hear, and it's just the simpler stuff that always seems to work best. I yeah. gotta say.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about track number seven, Walk Away, because that feels like a, a very powerful statement about kind of moving away from toxic people. You know, I, I can't imagine what mansplaining, bullying, sexism you've experienced in your career. Um, as a father of two daughters, I'm quite uh, attuned to that today, but you were blazing trails. Uh, I can't even imagine what you experienced. Talk a little bit about Walk Away.
0: Well, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's... Everyone's been through this before. Like, they've been in a situation where they they fall for somebody that's bad for them. You know, they, they somebody toxic that um, doesn't... You know, doesn't feed your uh, the angels of your better nature. You know, and they 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 blockade you, and they they, or they don't return. You know, that's unrequited or whatever the problem the toxic person you know creates for you. um, It's never a good thing. So, at some point, everyone in that kind of a relationship has had to tell themselves. Like, I need to get myself out of this. I have to make this call myself, and not keep letting myself be poisoned further with this this behavior. This person, you know, is doing so. um, So, yeah, it's a marriage, or it's it's a sibling, or it's you know, somebody that doesn't return the love. on to number eight
3: uh, a song called The In Between Jay and I are big fans of power pop and harmony vocals yeah (laughs) big time big time big time and uh, how did this go down and and we both noticed the hand there's a which sounds to be a, a real Hammond B3 organ there is it and who's playing it
0: yeah that is a real B3 Hammond um at my my guy dan walker who was on the heart the heart tour really amazing player oh my and gosh so good he's got the real stuff you know he's it yeah. is a home studio he's got a b3 and he's got you know the moog, synth, the moog synthesizer and uh, the real class the real stuff <laughs> yeah and and uh so yeah he's really great and i really uh love the song myself because initially there was a little poem my son Curtis um, Curtis Crow wrote this poem for class for creative writing class and it was the in between and a lot of the words most of the words are from that poem that he Mm. wrote and I figured that's such a cool play on words it's cool and it's meaningful in the, you know, the climate of today's political climate, or at least at the time that we were recording, is that the political climate was insanely strange, and um, and so I figured, you know, another way, kind of like the in the Angel Ballroom, it's very kind of a heavy topic dealt with in a very lighthearted sort of, you know, throwaway kind of thing. <laughs>
2: Well, as my my uh, radio friend Elliot would say, it has more hooks than a tackle box.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've never okay. heard that one.
2: Um, it is a classic line. <laughs>
3: yes, <laughs> a good line. I'm going
0: to use that.
2: It's yours. Uh, just cr- credit Elliot Kendall when you, when that <laughs> there goes. There you go. Yes. Um, so track number nine, Dreams. You know, that, for those that don't know, that's a Cranberry song, and this is featuring Liv Warfield. And for those that don't know, you know, Live was part of Prince's New Power Generation, and you collaborated. With her on Roadcase Royale, um, tell us a little bit about Dreams and Roadcase Royale. Really amazing stuff.
0: Yeah, well, with Roadcase Royale, you know, there was a time when Heart was kind of stalled out for a year or so there, two year or two, and um, so I, I was, you know, looking to create something new for myself and. Make a new rock band, you know. So I took Ben from Heart, who'd been previously in Heart, and you know a couple of those players that are on the album as well, and um, and we went out and we opened for Bob Seger, uh, arenas and stuff, nice. until until we were out there for it was really going well, and then until he hurt. You know his uh, neck, I believe it was, and he had to cancel the rest of his tour, so that was the end of our chance to open for him any longer, and we were so dejected because, you know, people were coming out from the, you know, they were, they were buying their t-shirts and they were bringing their beers out as soon as we started to play. We started with Even It Up, so it was familiar. Wow. And, and yeah. was, I was singing it, but... You know, then we did a bunch of heart stuff, too, in the set, as well as some stuff that we had recorded on our own album, um, a couple of covers and stuff. But Liv is just a sister to me, and she, her voice is incredible. Amazing. And, you know, so we, I said, I've got to figure out something for Liv to sing on this album. We were just in the car, and Dreams came on, and we were like, oh, my God. Jeff said that's perfect duet for you and live to do so i was like okay i'll make a demo and i'll send it her way and then i'll do the harmony after that after the track's down
3: nice wow and then up uh track number 10 is the dragon and now jay mentioned that he thought he saw you performing that song sometime back on some instructional dvds
0: um I think I did because uh, I'd started it in the 90s. Okay. And I, because of, um, I never finished it. I never had the last little part finished Uh all these years later. Um, And my guy at uh, Carry On Music uh, said, you got to do the dragon on your album because we did it in Roadcase Royale. We recorded it with Roadcase Royale on our album, First Things First. And he, he was the same guy at the record company for that. So he so said, can you do it again? you got to do it again. So we've been, you know, we, we made it, I think, even more cool version of it, mm-hmm. so uh-huh. even, even scarier. And, um, <laughs> but uh, that was my special request, yeah.
2: Was that Tom Tom Lipsky who asked you for that?
0: Yeah, Tom Lipsky. Yeah,
2: I know Tom. You know. And I do. I've, I've known him for many, many years, uh, great a great guy. Yeah, great well, music and, guy. Um, sorry, Mike. And then no, okay. no, I just wanted to just really quickly to tell you that the probably that song, uh, I mean, you, you have really great vocals across this whole album. That that one's special to me, the way that you deliver that vocally. And that must be, I mean, you played with one of the best vocalists, not best female vocalists, but one of the best vocalists in, in rock history. And to do that, um, you know, that, that's just absolutely stunning for me, and then for have you step out on your own and you just killed it on the dragon.
0: Oh God, mistakes. Well, you know, I uh, I always felt insecure being in the band with Anne because of her <laughs> amazing talent.
1: You know, yeah, she's
0: born to sing. You know, and I'm born to play. But um, but one time she's told me something really useful as far as approaching singing because i was struggling with something in a studio one time and she goes you don't don't try to be perfect just tell your story just tell the story oh, yeah. and i was like oh dear," you know <laughs> i i like that concept i think i could get around my wrap my head around that <laughs> so when i kind of approached you know being the lead singer on this whole project i was like i'm just going to relax into it and tell the story And not try to be perfect. Well, yeah. Or
3: be you, yeah, absolutely Is,
0: is you know,
3: you, you kind of mentioned uh, You know, you had this song floating around for a bit Do you, you know, when you sit down to Let's say, you know, talk about a new album Do you kind of pull out little snippets of things That, that maybe maybe riffs, maybe little phrases and, and where do they live? Do you keep them on like a, a notebook Or like in a recorder on your computer? You know, where do all these little snippets live?
0: Little notes that I keep in my phone, you know, in the notes section of your phone, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh-huh. like title ideas or just like a, a line here, a line there. Um, same with the little recorder that I put guitar ideas into or a piano idea into, uh-huh. which can you know spark something else later. I mean, when when I I said I would do an, um, an instrumental, we could wait till we get to it, but. Um, we, uh, I also agreed, you know, to do another instrumental, acoustic song, because the the, the management said you got to do that. Yeah. I said, okay, I'll I'll dedicate it to Edward Van Halen then, and uh-huh. then I'm like instantly regretted it, in the biggest of ways. Why? No, like, oh, what did I just commit myself to? Into what did I get myself into? Mm. I've painted myself in a corner. Now I have to actually produce a piece of music that's uh, dedicated to Eddie, and so that took the longest to achieve.
2: Well, let's skip ahead then. Um, and Mike, you can ask about We Meet Again. Let me steal this one. Um, for Edward, uh, I read a really great story about, you know, you giving Eddie an acoustic guitar. For those who haven't heard that, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really sweet.
0: Oh yeah, well, we we did some shows with Van Halen along the way in the middle of the '80s, basically, and um, you know they were they were really crazy. Partiers,
2: <laughs>
0: what and you take? We that were back. sort of yeah. yeah. I can't be sure. Well, they put us to shame. I'll just tell you that. Um, <laughs> and they were, you know, here try this drink, and we're like, what is it? It's a kamikaze, yeah. So we're like, wow, that's a really strong drink. And um, so, at one point, Eddie said, I really like the way you play the acoustic, and I said, oh wow, that's everything. Means everything to me coming from you, especially. And I said, why don't you play more acoustic? And he said, um, well, I don't really have one out here. I don't really play it that much. And I said, well, you should have one right now. I'm giving you this one right here. And I think it was an ovation I gave him. And. Uh, then flash, you know, fast forward to early dawn next morning. My phone rings in the hotel, and it's like, like, <laughs> "It's too early. It's not even light yet." <laughs> it's like, d- d- "Check it out! Check it out! I wrote this thing on your on the acoustic you gave me." And then he played this most gorgeous, you know, piece of c- a classical kind of rock piece of music that uh, wow that just just I over the phone. Believe. Over the phone, you know, just having not slept all night, I was sure. But, um, yeah, so then later at the show, backstage or something, I was like, I love what you played. It's so beautiful what you did. And he was like, what?
3: Oh, man.
0: (laughs) He may not have remembered it. I don't know. He might have just been too tired. (laughs) I don't know.
3: But did you then essentially kind of think back to some of the stuff he played and sort of, and sort of incorporate that into For Edward?
0: I remember the, just the basic sort of shape of it. And so that's what I was, you know, I was chasing that because it's uh, it started super sweet and kind of angelic and then it got kind of rough and ready and then it, kind of a bookend, sort of an idea, so yeah. It was, it was my tribute, you know, to what I thought I might have vaguely remembered from that morning. Wow.
3: <laughs> Which is hard story. to do. That's hard to, to even think back that far, let alone th- uh, have, have a song that was played over the phone when you were woken up out of a dead sleep. Yes, but exactly. It can be done. Uh, we, we did skip over We Meet Again, and, you know, lovely finger picking, very cinematic. Can you give us a little bit of background? Was this something that was, was a, a, a new, complete ride, or would this, had this been kind of uh, around for a while?
0: Well, um, the basic guitar part was uh, shape the shape of the Jerry Maguire basic guitar part mm. that I used to as a jumping-off point for that song. Because um, I was listening to some of my score stuff, and I I was I was just playing it on the computer, and Jeff said, "Well, that's such a great guitar part. Why don't you finish the song?" And I'm like. You mean I'm allowed to do that? It just doesn't belong to the movie company or something? <laughs> would, I, would I be in trouble? I don't know. So. Um, he said, no, you, you can totally do that. And I said, well, then I will. And I will. I'll make a song out of it because I really I'll always loved that part. And so, uh, yeah, that's why it might sound a little cinematic around the edges. And um, when I wrote the words... You know, I was I was thinking about, you know, how when you love somebody so deeply and whatever comes your way or whatever you have to get through, you'll still be there for each other no matter what life throws at you or even beyond your life, you know. So that was kind of the idea for the, the poetry in it um, where you're sort of pledging your universal... Uh, and unconditional love for the rest of the time.
3: <laughs> just wow. little
0: little yeah. stuff like that.
3: Yeah. yeah, that's pretty easy, isn't it? Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a cinch. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and kind of to
3: that, you know, would you would you say that in general, does do does music come easier than lyrics when you're writing, or or are they equally difficult, or do they sometimes one would just come easily, and then maybe the next time the other would come easily?
0: Sometimes it's it's easier. What, for the lyrics to happen, if you're if you're kind of burning with this idea, or you 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 kind of catch something in midair that you want to say, that sounds like a cool phrase, you know, that you want to put out there. But other times, yeah, it's the music kind of speaks for itself, and then you have to figure out how to fit words to it. So um, it comes every which way, but you know, it's sort of like whatever. Whenever you. Ca- Whenever you have an inspiration, it's a flaming pie, and you have to pay attention. <laughs> you know, you try to capture, you try to catch it.
3: <laughs> yeah, which is hard. And do you do you ever, like, write something and then suddenly remember how great it was, but can't remember the song? Does it come back to you, or is it just, it's gone in the ether forever?
0: Well, a lot of times, and I know this happens to music people, when you... Wake up from a dream, and you're dreaming of beautiful music, mm. and then it disappears on you, and you're like, Damn it, I can't <laughs> yeah. remember. That. Why can't I remember that? It was so beautiful. Um, I mean, in Paul McCartney's thing, he talks about you know, a lot of times that happens to him because mm-hmm. he's a writer, yeah. And the thing 321 that he did with Rick. Rick, no, we Rick all, oh, yeah, we, we love, love he it's talked about it, exciting. yeah, so good. Uh, so good, And but then when he woke up and the tune for Yesterday was in his yes. head, he remembered it.
3: <laughs> and he thought it was somebody else's. He thought for sure somebody else had written that song.
0: It's familiar to me, yeah. Right. I know, it, so...
2: Have you ever yeah, done so. that, where you had an idea, Nancy, that you're like, this has to be, this is, has got to be something else, and it's got to be somebody else's?
0: A couple times along the way, it's like, this sounds so familiar to me. Did I make it up? You know? And there's friends of other friends that are really good at knowing if you made it up or not. So you kind of, you parade it around the friendship yeah. trail, and somebody said, no, that's no, that's yours. It's like, oh, thank
3: God, I like it. Oh, that's Great. awesome. Uh, you know, speaking of, of kind of music and musicians, uh, earlier this year you had a signature model Epiphone guitar come out. It's called the Fanatic. It's got to be great when somebody comes to you and says, we have, we want to have a signature guitar of yours. Um, but apparently I'd read that you were approached many years ago to do one, and for whatever reason it didn't happen. What happened this time with that guitar, and how did it, how did it come to pass, and what do you love about the Fanatic?
0: Yeah, the, well, the Fanatic, um, yeah, it was a two-stage kind of a discovery. Um, it was Gibson initially. Um In the 80s, when they approached me to design a body shape for a specific, you know, size, not like a a new shape for them, and so I did that back then, and then everybody changed, you know, like all the leaders, or all of the business of Gibson changed around. Yeah, there was new people that got replaced and all mm-hmm. this stuff. So that kind of went by the wayside. And then, more recently, the Epiphone folks, you know, showed up a lot at the Hearts shows, and we talked about a re, kind of resurrecting the body shape and like making a signature, which would be you know a little more diminutive a little kind of a feminine version of a, and a lightweight, lighter weight, mm. but screaming rock guitar that was affordable for people. So yeah, so that's what we did.
2: I'm actually starting well, to see people play it. There's a, a band here in Los Angeles called Finding Elysium, and they have an amazing female guitarist, uh, Noel Ray, who wow. has one. And yeah, uh, weird. And it, yeah it's uh, it's really great seeing that out there, and you know your influence on these uh,
0: wow, younger people. Wow, that's cool. Good to know.
2: That's true. Well, and it's it's so true because as I have two guitar-playing
3: daughters, and it, it is different. You know, when you you need something a little bit a little bit smaller and, and more appropriate for the size of their hands and the weight, and so
0: Wait, yeah, the yeah. weight.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's it gets more of a big deal every year, you know. Like, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's like, oh my yeah, god, sure yeah.
0: the holidays. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Or
3: or Thank being cooped be up for week. 12 months or 14. Months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as we wrap this up. Nancy, if you look into your crystal ball, what's kind of the next three years look like for you, more or less? Or two years, you know? What do you have coming up? What can we look forward to?
0: Well, you know, um, me and Sue right now are continuing to do some songwriting. Whether or not it's for me to sing, I'm not sure yet till we finish them. Um, but I love working with Sue, and, you know, it's just really fulfilling to to. Feel like you're still being creative and you know pushing forward with anything creative at all. So yeah, um, it's it's just really healing to do, and we we have really such hysterical fun working with each other too. We always yeah, have we, every in group joke you could ever think of, <laughs> you're and right? And every connotation to every in group <laughs> joke. So um, it's just uh, it's it's really fun and. we're keeping each other kind of sane meanwhile yeah well that's that's exciting there's also a heart tour that's on the table um live nation put a big offer on the table for heart in 2022 so that could be a good deal and you know as long as i get to pick the players i'm good i'm good (laughs) (laughs) well We are. I'm
3: sure I speak for Jay when I say we hope that happens so we can see you live yeah
0: nice to be able to go out
2: on big stages again and
0: congratulations
2: on this this album You and Me is absolutely beautiful Um, we're so thrilled to be able to talk to you about it and tell people about it and um, I'm just thrilled our probably simple request is please don't have this large of a gap between
3: zero to first solo album between first and second solo
0: album (laughs) Yeah, I'll be calling it in from, you know, the clouds.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. So we would, I think we would all appreciate it as fans if you would do another solo album.
0: Fairly I promise solo. I'll do new music some more because it's so fulfilling for sure. Awesome. Yeah.
2: Wonderful. Yeah.
3: Nancy,
0: thanks, thanks again. We sure
2: appreciate We yes. really appreciate your time. We
0: really had good fun with you guys. Don't need to.
1: program for the new music business join jay gilbert and mike etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know